they may be judged who do not believe the truth, but to pleasure in wickedness. I want you to know that the opposite of truth is not error. In Scripture, the opposite of truth is sin. They did not embrace the truth because they took pleasure in wickedness. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in Chapter 9 of the Book of Romans, and we're dealing with the question of whether God has preordained some people to heaven and others to hell. The topic of election often brings intense debate, and Dr. Brogy explains today how God always initiates, but He also requires a response of faith. He doesn't wish any should perish, but all should come to repentance. When we come to verse 23, Paul will speak of vessels of mercy who were prepared beforehand. And there the word prepared is not a passive verb, but an active verb. An active verb, if you remember from high school English, is when the subject does the action. So there's a big difference between I hit the ball is far different than I was hit by the ball. In an active verb, the subject does the action. We're in a passive verb, the subject receives the action. The first verb, translated prepared, is a passive verb. The second is an active verb. What does that mean? It means that man is not being prepared by God Almighty for hell, but man, by choices he makes is preparing himself to be a vessel of destruction. God simply leaves people in their sin that they willingly embrace when they harden themselves against God and they prepare themselves for destruction. And it is a perfect tense in the Greek New Testament, which means that this ruin is an eternal state. Unlike the best-selling book done by emergent pastor uh, Rob Bell called Love Wins, hell, according to the Bible, is forever. And millions of people, unfortunately, will go there against God's earnest desire, but when they go there, they will go there forever and ever and ever. By contrast, in verse 23, he uses an active verb where he describes vessels of mercy for glory. And so while God never takes responsibility for the damnation of a soul except for the fact that he is the divine judge and the final executor, he does take responsibility for the salvation of a soul that God actively works in dead hearts, moves upon people, so that people then can freely and really choose. And so when you get to heaven, you will have, take no credit for your salvation. And when I hear these self-centered, obnoxious testimonies, when people tell me about how wise they were in reading apologetic works and figuring out they have missed the point of the New Testament. The Bible says, for by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And if you ever read a book on apologetics, it's because God put that desire in your heart because it didn't come naturally. But again, the Calvinist takes verses 22 and 23 to refer to personal election and not national election. But even if that is true, the way they interpret the text is faulty. What is in view here is not double predestination. What is in view, as we've seen from Jeremiah the prophet and in the illustrations with Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau, is that of national election. 
Now, Paul doesn't ignore personal conversion in this chapter. He's already spoken to the fact early on that a person cannot just say that I'm a descendant of Abraham and therefore I'm right with God. He still has to make a choice. But just like God may, in essence, look at a nation as a whole in unbelief, he can look at another nation as one that deserves his blessing. Now, follow this. How many Jews in the early chapters of the book of Acts received Jesus as Lord and Savior? If you do the count conservatively, it's at least 25,000 people. Now, some would say it's much more than that. Maybe it's as high as 60,000. Some commentators have said at least 100,000. But conservatively speaking, 25,000 Jewish people in Acts 1 through 7 are converted and they believe Jesus is Lord. And yet, when John writes the New Testament, he can say in John 1.11, he came, Jesus, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Why does he say that? Because out of the millions of Jews that were on the planet, when Jesus walked on this planet, for the most part, as a nation, they rejected the Lord Jesus. And so when God speaks sometimes of a nation, he can speak of them in a holistic way. That did not mean that everyone in that nation, though the nation was discarded and had temporarily been laid aside and had become a vessel of wrath as seen in 70 AD when Titus Vespucian comes down and wipes out the city of Jerusalem. That didn't mean that every Jew was an unbeliever and went to hell. Any more than it means when in the end, the nations of the world will all come against Israel. Israel, the Bible teaches, that doesn't mean that every single individual in those nations went to hell either, because people can make their own individual choices within a nation. So the potter never says to the clay, why did you make me like this? The potter has a sovereign choice. The clay never can say that to the potter. Why did you make me like this? The potter is never instructed by the clay. The clay is sovereign in all that he does. So there's the rightness of God's sovereign choice, showing that man has no room to argue with God Almighty. There's the reason for his sovereign choice. It's God's patience. It's God's love. It's compassion tempered by his justice and his wrath that drives his choices. And then very briefly, and we'll explore it next time more, the result from God's sovereign choice. The result. Notice now verse 23. Verse 23 is really an answer that Paul gives in response to the question he asks in verse 22. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So he's going back to verse 22. And if someone went back to that, you could ask the question, God, why did you put up with Pharaoh for so long? Why didn't you just obliterate him after the first plague? Because as verse 23 indicates, God wanted to make known his mercy. And God, by the way, was compassionate toward this man. When Moses first goes to Pharaoh, he doesn't ask him to leave Egypt altogether forever. He asks him for a three-day journey that he might go and worship. Someone called me on the Bible line and wanted to know if Moses was deceptive in making that call. God told him to say that. There's no deception in God, but God was giving Pharaoh a small incremental step that if he took a smaller step of faith, he could make a larger step of faith. He was never violating the free will of the king of Egypt. 
But God did what he did and dealt with the man the way he did so that his glory might be seen. Put out next to this verse, right out of the margin next to verse 23, Exodus 14, 31. Exodus 14, 31. Let me read it to you. We're told there, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God received great honor by the way Pharaoh responded. And God patiently enduring with this man. Instead of bringing the last plague first, God in his mercy patiently endured. And through all 10 plagues that we're still talking about some 4,000 years later, people saw the greatness of God and they feared the Lord. And if you know the Exodus, even some of the Egyptians feared the Lord and they did what God said and they went out with the, with the Hebrew people. That's what Paul is saying here in verses 22 and 23. So much more we need to explore, but it needs to wait till next time. So let's talk about how to apply this text of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration and it is profitable. So what profit can we learn today? Let me give you three questions. Number one, ask this. Do we have a right to question God's ways? Do we have a right to question the ways of God? Now, when Paul is inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, to write verse 20, he is doing so as a polemic, as a defense against the critics of his day. And so he plainly says, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? When he makes this statement, he's basically saying, who are you to question the creator? It's a very strong rebuke to the unbeliever who thinks that he can talk back to God and tell God what to do. But with that said, it's not necessarily wrong in the Bible to ask questions. I preached one time the book of Habakkuk, and I called him the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. He's the prophet with a question mark for a brain. And he asks all these questions, and when he asks them, God doesn't bring out his club and smush him and say, what are you asking that for? When you read the Psalms, you cannot help but read godly men like David or Asaph or Korah who loved and revered God, and yet they poured many questions upon the Lord. When you come to the last book in the Bible, to the Revelation, there's a great multitude of people who had never prior to the rapture heard the gospel in authority and in power, and they converted during the time of the tribulation, so they refused to give allegiance to Antichrist, and so as overcomers, their heads are cut off. And being very alive in heaven, because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, they say, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Understand, there is a big difference between the psalmist asking, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper and challenging the very character of God and his right to rule? God's not interested in insincere questions where we don't really want his answer. And he's certainly not interested in questions that are asked in such a way where you question his character without faith, without taking God at his word, because the one who stands behind that word without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
And so there is a huge difference between asking God for wisdom in the midst of a trial, as James chapter 1 instructs us to do, and questioning the wisdom of God and attacking his right to rule. And so while we may take a verse like verse 20 and understand that it was meant as a defense for Christians in Rome to deal with the unbelieving critics of their day, we can take a verse like that and dump it on the unbeliever and not apply it to us. And so sometimes God's people ask questions that are insincere in nature. Why did you make me with these weaknesses and strengths? Why did you give me the husband or the wife you gave me? Why didn't you give me a husband or a wife? Why did you give me these children or why did you give me no children? Why did you give me the parents I grew up in, the family I was raised in? Why was I born in the state or the nation I was born? God, why, 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 why? And it's okay to ask honest questions because God wants to be included in our fellowship, but when they're asked insincerely and out of a spirit that questions the character of God, Paul would just say, the molder will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? And so in short, an honest question is not sin, but a question asked out of bitterness, untrusting, and a rebellious heart is sin. God's not intimidated by your questions, but don't expect an answer if it's not asked out of a genuine heart. So let's go to a second application. If man is truly free, does that make God less sovereign? This is an important issue. Now we've studied here in the last few weeks, Paul's illustration of God hardening the king's heart, but only in response to the king first hardening his heart. And if we've seen, the Apostle Paul takes this principle and he applies it to God's dealing with the nation of Israel. But some of my Calvinist friends would say, oh, poor old, poor old Pharaoh. He didn't have a chance. He was just a pawn on God's chessboard of life. God set him up so he could knock him down. To show his sovereignty, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so Pharaoh could go to hell. And they think that if somehow a man has a say, any say at all, in his salvation, that we are in essence questioning God's right to rule and we are making God less than sovereign. And I told you last time that some of my hyper-Calvinistic friends that is packaged typically under replacement theology or reformed theology very often overemphasize the sovereignty of God to the exclusion of his love. In fact, the true Calvinist does not believe that Christ loves everyone, that God loves everyone. They do not believe that you can go up to anyone on the street and say, God loves you and Christ died for you. Because they don't believe that Christ died for everyone, that Christ died only for the elect. That's the doctrine of a particular atonement. And we explore that in depth in Romans chapter 5. And so when they speak of the love of God from their pulpits, many times afraid to tell their congregation what they believe because they're afraid they might turn some folks off, they will nonetheless speak of the love of God, but in very couched terms. They'll say, well, God loves those who will repent and believe, meaning he loves only the elect. And because of their view of the sovereignty of God, I believe they obliterate the love of God. And they tend to have a one-track mind. You can hardly get into a discussion with them or in a Bible study 
or some other related topic where you do not end up on the doctrine of election or predestination. They always end up there. And I often try to grasp their enthusiasm for the doctrine of divine sovereignty. And I realize that there are two typical factors that are driving their passion. Number one, they believe that somehow if man has a say in his salvation, that somehow he has usurped the sovereignty of God. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I love the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is very freeing to me, and it's an attribute that is revealed in Scripture. But nonetheless, their view of sovereignty, I do not believe is a correct view. In fact, I would say to my hyper-Calvinist brothers, I believe in a God who's more sovereign than the one you believe in. In fact, I believe he is so sovereign that in his sovereignty, he allows us to make a decision. The second reason that often drives their passion for the sovereignty of God is in reaction to Arminianism that says man all by himself, unaided by God, can come to Jesus Christ. And they would say, well, if man can do that, then it's a work salvation. Listen, God makes the first move, but he still gives you a choice. You are not robotic. God gives man a real choice. And exercising faith is not an option, and neither is it a work. In Ephesians 2, God says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We're not saved in the strictest sense by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. The grace of God is for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Faith is believing in the only begotten Son. For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If we are not saved by works, then faith clearly is not a work because Paul puts faith in opposition to works. J. Gresham Machen, who is actually a great Presbyterian pastor, who taught at Princeton University in the seminary there in the 1920s. I have a classic original written by him. I pulled it out again this week. It's entitled, What is Faith? It's a great read if you can find it. And let me quote from his book. He said, The true reason why faith is given such an exclusive place by the New Testament so far as the attainment of salvation is concerned, over against love and over against anything else in man, is that faith means receiving something, not doing something, or even being something. To say, therefore, that our faith saves us means that we do not save ourselves, even in the slightest measure, but that God saves us. And so faith is simply the channel that receives what God has done for us in Christ. Let me read to you a verse. I've been doing my quiet times in Deuteronomy, and I came across this in this past week, Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2. I've read it many times, but it struck me in light of the text we're in. He said, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, when God says he wants to know what was in their heart, understand an omniscient God already knew what was in their heart. But he wanted them to see the fact that they didn't really know what was in their hearts. And like them, we tend to have an overestimated view of ourselves. But please understand, when God says this, God is not playing games with them. Because he truly gave them a free will, and he wanted them to make the right kind of choices. 
And God, in aiding our free will and awakening a dead heart, in no way takes away our free will. He wants to simply see if you will say yes or no to what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. And so I believe that if you believe that we are truly free, that we truly have a choice to say yes or no for God, then you have a higher view of the sovereignty of God than my Calvinistic brothers. Third and finally, I'd like us to ask, what is the process by which a person develops a hard heart? What's the process? Recently, I had to glue something in my home, and it was a serious glue job, and it was the only way it could be fixed. And so I went out into the workshop, and I found these two tubes. I think I've been carrying them around since our first few years of marriage. It shows you how much gluing I do, I suppose. And, and uh, one tube on it said hardener. You're supposed to take these two tubes and you're going to mix the two substances together and then you applied it to whatever it is you're trying to glue. And it made me think, well, what is the hardening agent by which a person develops a hard heart? And the answer all the way through Scripture is the same. The hardening agent is what the Bible calls sin. Jesus said in John 3.19, this is the judgment that the light is coming to the world and men love darkness rather than the light. Why? For their deeds were evil. The hardening agent is a moral issue. It is always a sin problem. Some of you here today will not receive Jesus Christ and you are hardening your heart towards him because you love your sin too much. We studied that last week with the king of Egypt. And we saw how God responded to that man. God does the same today. Not in the sense that he makes some soft hearts so that they can go to heaven and he makes other hearts hard so they can go to hell. Not in the sense that God only softens some and he ignores others. But please understand, your choice first with your sin is what creates the hardness of heart. And there are many New Testament examples of that, but let me read just one because it's speaking of a coming day where in a worldwide, huge way, the peoples of the world are going to do this very thing. Paul is describing the return of Jesus from heaven. The rapture of the church is the next event on God's calendar. A seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation takes place. And then Jesus literally, visibly, physically descends to the earth and rules for a thousand years. During that seven-year period, there will be the majority of planet Earth, over two-thirds, who will give their, themselves to the Antichrist. And Paul, in describing that, says this. That is, this coming Antichrist, he's the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with the deception of wickedness for those who perish. And please notice the reason why this happens to them. Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And then the Bible says here in verse 11, for this reason, for what reason? Because they did not receive the love of the truth to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. In other words, because they said no to God, if they think they can clean it up at the last minute after the church is gone and say yes to Jesus, they're mistaken because God will judicially deal with them. He will send a hardening agent such that they will believe what is false. And why does God send this delusion? Look at verse 12. In order that they may be judged who do not believe the truth, but to pleasure in wickedness. 
I want you to know that the opposite of truth is not error. In Scripture, the opposite of truth is sin. They did not embrace the truth because they took pleasure in wickedness. And when a man wills not to believe the truth, it's not because he has an intellectual difficulty. God would say it's because he has a moral difficulty. And when a man loves the devil's ways, in the end, he believes the devil's lies. And God will often give people just enough rope in which to hang themselves. Now, don't forget, this happens after the church is raptured. But for it to happen, the Bible tells me it is happening before the rapture. In other words, people are already hardening their hearts such that when the rapture takes place, those who have heard the gospel in clarity and power will end up believing a lie. It will be too late for them. And Jesus speaks to the fact that it, while it is happening or going to happen in a broad spread way worldwide someday, it's called the great apostasy. It happens today amongst individuals such that because a man says no to God, there comes a point when the final callus is put on the human heart and Jesus said the seed is snatched. The devil is given permission to take it that they may not believe and be saved. And so we live in a day when people are hardening their hearts towards God. This is a generation that is sticking their fist in the face of God Almighty. Spoke to a family this week and they were telling me about one particular Christian school here in the southeast where the kids are going out drinking and sexting and all kinds of stuff. And they got their parents buffalo. This is a Christian school, an evangelical Christian school. And that's our day where people are drinking and cussing and carousing and pointing. And they're hardening their hearts towards God. And there's coming a time when God says, enough is enough. So God warns, today is the day of salvation. When you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Our Father and our God, we thank You this morning for the truth revealed here in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. Thank You that this is not simply what You have said, this is what You are saying. May we this morning hear what You've said that we might respond accordingly. Thank You that You love sinners. That whosoever will may come and that if there's someone here today who has even an inkling, a desire to come, it is not too late. Help them to acknowledge their wickedness before you and to trust the Lord Jesus and His death on the cross as the payment for that sin, that they might find forgiveness in a new life. Help someone today in simple faith to simply say, before it is forever too late, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, may we have compassion towards the people that we will meet this week as You had compassion on us. Thank You for Your sovereign initiative with us and thank You for the human agent that You use where someone comes alongside and tells us of a Savior who has died and has been risen that they might be forgiven. Help us to have that same compassion this week in obedience to His commission. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's message entitled God's Sovereign Choice, download the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, and there you can listen to the entire Romans series. Just look up Search the Scriptures with Dr. Brogy in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. 
Of course, you can also listen online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or request a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and ask for today's program, number ROM48, entitled, God's Sovereign Choice. Perhaps you have a question you'd like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Just listen online at wagp.net. Tomorrow, we'll continue our look at Romans 9 and begin a new message entitled, Stumbling Over Truth. Join us then when we search the Scriptures. (music) 